I invite you to turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7 this morning. Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to the Old Testament scriptures uh, for the next three sermons uh, that I preach to you. The next three, we, we will look at important Old Testament texts that pointed uh, Israel to the coming of the Son of God. And so as we come to Isaiah chapter 7 this morning, uh, we come to uh, a chapter that contains, I think, one of the most famous verses in the entire book of Isaiah. It's the verse that talks about the, the prophecy of Emmanuel. We just sang about it, God with us. And so this verse is found in the chapter. I invite you to look in your Bibles at verse 14. Isaiah 7, 14, I'll read it for us. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now in order to grasp the full significance of this verse, however, I want to uh, look at the situation of its original readers. Isaiah gives this verse in its context to the people of Judah 700 years before Christ came. And the original readers were a people in crisis. So this morning, my plan is to look at the, the section immediately before and around verse 14 and accent not only their situation, but accent how this verse, verse 14, provided hope for Judah and Jerusalem. And so we're going to look at the story of Judah in crisis. Their story starts with a wicked king and a national crisis. So I invite you to look down your Bible in verses 1 and 2. A wicked king and a national crisis. Look at verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Razan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook at the trees, or as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. As we start in this Old Testament story, we need to first consider its main character. The main character of chapter 7 is King Ahaz. Okay, so as we look at King Ahaz, I would describe him to you in two ways, just very briefly, to give you a picture of what's going on in chapter 7. The first way I'd describe Ahaz was he was a wicked king. He's wicked. In the books of the Kings and the Chronicles, before this in the Old Testament, you can learn about the, the wickedness of Ahaz in fuller detail. He became a king at the age of 20, but he did not follow in the same good ways as his father Jotham had. Ahaz, in, uh, instead of worshiping God alone, led the people of Judah to worship Baal, to follow after him and worship after other false gods. As a matter of fact, you could read in those other Old Testament books that on one occasion, Ahaz even offered up his own son as a living sacrifice to a pagan deity. And so I'd say this about King Ahaz, he was a wicked king. Okay, got that? He's wicked. And the second way I describe him is he ruled during a difficult time. He ruled during a national crisis. King Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem. 
two tribes in the south uh, were separate from the ten tribes in the north. It was not a unified Israel. The northern tribes uh, and the southern tribes. And so he's just ruling over the smaller, weaker part. He's much smaller and weaker than his greatest foes. As a matter of fact, he had two significant foes that he would have to lead the southern kingdom of Judah against. The first uh, came from continual opposition on one side from an alliance between Israel. We call them the northern tribes of Israel. In this text, they're also called Ephraim. It's another way of saying Israel. So there was an alliance between northern Israel and Syria. And so... uh, King Ahaz had to lead Judah against this alliance. If you went back to 2 Chronicles and Kings, you could, you could learn there how Judah uh, was just about wiped out by this alliance between Israel and Syria. There were more than 1,000 people killed under the reign of Ahaz because of this false alliance. And, and at one point, there were over 2,000 people deported as slaves, or just on the brink of being deported as slaves from Judah and Jerusalem to Israel and Syria. But a prophet stood in the way and challenged those of northern Israel and said, you can't do this to Judah, and they, they relented. And so he is at a very vulnerable position. To his north, he's got the northern kingdom and Syria and alliance joining to fight him. But his greatest threat, we're going to find out in this chapter, is not Israel and Syria, it's Assyria. It's a different country. He's much larger, much bigger. And, and uh, this is actually his greatest threat, we'll see in chapter 7. Now, unfortunately, Ahaz, as a king, was in the process of joining in an alliance with wicked Assyria to get relief from Israel and Syria. Okay, and so that's a little bit of the background. But look again down in your Bible at verse 2. This is when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. That's northern Israel. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So as I come to this text, for some reason it appears that Israel and Syria have taken up league again. And they're going to finish the job. This time they're going to go down to Judah. They're going to go down to Jerusalem and wipe them out. So the people of Judah have a wicked king and a national crisis, verses 1 and 2. But the situation gets worse in verses 3 through 17, the second half of this text. And we learn that they also have a bold prophet and a bleak future. And look first at the bold prophet, verses 3 through 13. His name is Isaiah. Look with me at the bold prophet, verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit at the upper pole on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syrian, the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us consider it for ourselves and, let, uh, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in, in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin, 
And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he, that's Isaiah, said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? The people of Judah are in a a crisis with a wicked king. So God sends a prophet. Isaiah is tasked here to take his son and to go and to meet Ahaz at a very specific location. You see that right at the beginning of the narrative. He says, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway that goes to the washer's field. Like, can you get any more specific than that? You see, you see the sovereign hand of God. He knows exactly where King Ahaz is going to be at this moment. It appears that Ahaz is at this spot because he's checking his water supply. He's checking his water supply. Because walled cities like Jerusalem would only be as good as their water supply was. Because if you didn't have water, eventually your people would have to come out and they would not be protected. And so Isaiah meets him there. And once he finds him, he gives Ahaz a few reasons why he should not fear. He should not fear because the two kings, the king of Israel and Syria, who were going against him, were only smoldering stumps. You see that in the text? Smoldering stumps of firebrand. You say, what in the world is a smoldering stump of a firebrand? I think one commentator helps us understand this well. His name is John Oswald. He said, for all of their bluster, they are unable to do anything They are just like burned out ends of logs remaining around the edges of the campfire when the real fire has gone out. They may still be smoldering, but there's not genuine fire there, and Ahaz does not need to fear these kings. Okay, so that's the first way Isaiah is going to challenge Ahaz and try to encourage him. Don't fear those kings. Sure, there's a lot of smoke, but there's no fire. They're not going to get you. You should also not fear them because the text says that Ephraim or Israel, northern Israel, will not even be a people in 65 years. You see that in the text? It's a very specific prophecy from Isaiah to King Ahaz to encourage him or strengthen him as the leader of Judah. But I think the most important part of Isaiah's words of encouragement come at the end of verse 9. He's talking to King Ahaz. He says, Don't fear them. They're just like smoldering stumps. At the end of verse 9, what does he say? He says, and this is directed to Ahaz. If you, Ahaz, are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm, what? At all. You, You still with me? Okay. If not, get with me. All right? If you are not firm in faith, you won't be firm at all. See, Ahaz is in a difficult difficult spot. Yes, he's a wicked king, but he's in a difficult spot. He feels that he only has two choices. Am I going to lie myself with Syria and Israel in the north, or am I going to lie myself with Assyria? And I'm, I'm sure he spent a lot of time thinking about this because his own neck was on the line. See that Israel and Syria, they want to replace him with another king by the name of Tabeel. We don't know much about Tabeel, but they want to put Tabeel in there as a puppet king to lead. And so as Ahaz thinks through this and considers this, Isaiah offers him a a rather radical alternative. 
He is to forswear all alliances and trust wholly in the Lord God. There's a different choice. When given the choice between A and B, Isaiah says, choose neither. Choose God. But Ahaz lacks faith in God. Ahaz, as a wicked king, did not want to to risk his kingdom on a God that he could not see. Instead, he determines to trust in an alliance with Assyria, a choice that he will soon regret. And women, as we look at this text, I think the abiding lesson so far in this passage is that it is necessary and practical to trust God no matter how great the crisis in your life might be. Some Christians, if they were to, to come across a contemporary Ahaz, they might hail his choice of joining with Assyria as like a politically savvy move. I think some Christians would really struggle with another, would say, my trust will be in God alone. That's it. So we would say things like, yeah, but what practical help are you going to get from that? So when going through a trial, you know, what solution do we give them? When they're going through a crisis, what do we have to offer them? And we say, you know what? You have the great creator God who loves you and cares for you and will never leave you. And occasionally Christians will say, yeah, that's good, but what practical helps can you give? I say, men and women, don't get sucked into that. Don't get sucked into that. Okay. Um, If the text says, if we are not firm in faith, we will not be firm at all. And so what Isaiah offers him God here. It's far more practical and helpful than anything that we could give to someone in crisis. It's more practical than the three R's of grief, like the four Q's of hope or something. I say, I don't need your R's. I don't need your Q's. I need to be pointed to the creator God as a help in crisis. And so into this great crisis, God brings a bold prophet And even volunteers in verses 10 through 12 to give Ahaz a sign. So look down in your Bibles at verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And and he said, that's Isaiah said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? This offer from God is not a little insignificant offer. It's a sign as significant as heaven and earth itself. God says there, you can choose any sign you want. It can can go as deep as Sheol, which would be the grave, or it can go as high as heaven. God is willing to move heaven and earth if it will help Ahaz choose faith in him. But Ahaz is not interested in it. And in a moment, as I, I would take the, the next verse there, uh, verse 12, in a moment of false piety, Ahaz says that he's above asking God for signs. <laughs> yeah. That's because we already learned in the Kings and Chronicles, you've already made up your mind. You're going with Assyria. You don't want to hear anything from God on this. And so he takes this false 
pious answer. He's not going to talk to God. And then we, we can see that he's not genuine by the way Isaiah, the prophet, responds in verse 13. It appears that Ahaz has not only wearied him as a prophet, you're not only wearying men, you've wearied God. My God. So then this bold prophet announces their bleak future in the next few verses. So look at verses 14 through 17 as we close here. Their bleak future. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim, or northern Israel, departed from Judah. You got the king of Assyria there at the end. Although Ahaz had refused a sign of God's power, he gets no choice. God's going to give him a sign. The sign, unfortunately, for Ahaz will do him no good because the text is clear that Ahaz will be judged and his people. Get down to the, the end of this section, near the end of the section, verses 16 and 17, 16b and 17, you can see the bleak future of Israel, the northern tribes of Israel, and Judah very clearly. The way I take the end of verse 16 is he's describing the bleak future of Israel. Isaiah says that the land of the two kings that you fear, Ahaz, will be entirely deserted. Northern Israel and Syria will be entirely deserted. They won't even be a people, he said earlier. But then in verse 17, he turns the attention not to the northern tribes and Syria, but to Ahaz himself and Judah. That's how I take verse 17. Isaiah describes a significant punishment that God is going to bring on Judah. This punishment will be greater than anything that they've experienced in some time. And it will come at the hand of the king of Assyria. In fact, uh, if you've got the ESV like I'm reading from, I'd encourage you to do one thing, to underline the phrase, the king of Assyria, at the end of verse 17, and we're going to move it up in the text a little bit so that it could read like this. Verse 17, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house the king of Assyria. Comma, such days as have not been since the day of Ephraim departed from Judah. That's what Judah is going to experience. A crisis. A bleak future. The king of Assyria, the one they thought they could trust, will come and, and will get them. But into the national crisis and the bleak future, God instills hope. And that's what verse 14 is about. Look at verse 14 again. Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So both Israel and Judah are going to be greatly afflicted by Assyria. Israel will completely succumb. Judah will almost entirely be afflicted. But then, after some time, a son will be born into their depravity. When the son, the son is young, he will eat curds and honey. You see that in the text? 
One commentator described curds and honey as, I mean, it sounds kind of good to me. I don't know what curds and honey are. But he described it as the monotonous food of poverty. The son will be born and he'll come and he'll eat those things. The monotonous food of poverty. Yet when he comes, his coming will be absolutely astounding. Text says, a virgin will conceive and will bring forth a son. While believe it or not, there's a lot of controversy regarding the identity of the virgin and her son. It comes down to, you know, was there a virgin and a son in Ahaz's day and in Jesus' day or just Jesus? I'd be more of the just, just Jesus sort of variety. It seems very reasonable to me then that God intends this sign of a virgin giving birth to point forward to the birth of his own son, Jesus. At least that's how the New Testament author Matthew takes it, so I'm going to side with him. This son will come as an ideal ruler, ideal king. Throughout this story, we've been introduced to a main character, King Ahaz, a wicked king, short-sighted, fearful, unfaithful. Yet in this verse, we are introduced to a future ideal king named Emmanuel, which means God is with us. This new ideal king who will come in the future to deliver both Judah and Israel and the world for that matter will bring God to them. We will learn more about the ideal ruler tonight as we go through Isaiah 9 because in Isaiah 9 we learn his names we learn the nature of his kingdom and what he brings. As we close this morning, we, we look at Isaiah chapter 7 and we see the people of Judah in a crisis with a bleak future. And they're offered hope in the future coming of the Son of God. As we close, I just want to draw a few points of application. We, we imagine ourselves in their scenario, but perhaps you yourself have gone through a different crisis in the last few days or months. Right before I ask about your crisis, I just want to take a moment and reflect upon something that for me was uh, what I would call the most difficult crisis uh, that I've ever experienced. Matter of fact, uh, I think this is the first public time I will ever discuss this with a group. Uh, this crisis in my life brought deep wounds and scars that I think in some way still, still are there. Happened for me about six years ago. I had served for 11 years at a Bible college in the Northwoods of Wisconsin, a little school called Northland. Northland was a very special place to me. As I think back on it, I'd met my wife there. I'd been trained there with the scriptures, and God worked very seriously in my heart before even being a professor when I was a student there. There were places, there still are places on that campus that all I have to do is think of the place. I can imagine the place. I can think of the place. I remember the, the White Chapel and the significant things that God did in my heart in that location. Remember different corners of the gymnasium where God gripped my heart and showed me sin in my life. 
I remember, I know this sounds weird and strange. There were like trees on campus. It sounds so like sentimental. There were like different trees on campus. I remember stopping next to the tree and praying to the Lord and the Lord just really moving my heart and doing things. Well, it's a very special place for us. I, I was a professor there and it became obvious to me that the school was leaning and about to collapse under financial pressure. And so over the course of several months, I remember going to different places. I remember I actually did this. I sat in a chair, the second floor of uh, the building that I worked in, and I, I pulled it over to the, the window, and I would, I would pray in the morning before anyone came. I would pray, Lord, please, please save Northland. Deliver Northland. You can do it, God. You're sovereign. You've got ability. You've got, like, you know, cattle on a thousand hill. I mean, I'd be pleading with God. I remember crying on several occasions. Asking God to deliver this place that was so near to my heart. I remember thinking what life would be like with no Northland. With no Northland. And after some time of struggle, maybe two or three years off and on, God showed me that my hope is not in a building or in physical locations but in the coming Son of God who will come soon and he'll make everything right. What is the crisis that you face today? Perhaps it's a relational crisis. You took covenant promises to your spouse, but he or she has been unfaithful to you in heart or action. Where is there hope for you? There's only hope for you in the coming of a son who will set all things right. And to you I say gently, believe. Believe in your heart that this world is not all there is. And that there's coming a king who will bring peace, well-being, and joy that's unimaginable. Perhaps you find yourself in a health crisis. The future for you is daunting and fearful. Where is there hope for you? And again, I say very gently to you, believe. Believe that this world is not all there is that there's coming a son who will return and make all things right with him. Perhaps you're in a sinful crisis. Your sin is enslaving and destroying you. You are ensnared in your own lust or drunkenness or greed or gossip. Where is there hope for you? There's only hope for you in the coming of a son who will make all things right and overcome all your wickedness. Let's pray together. Father, as we try to imagine the plight of the people of Judah, no hope, wicked king, national crisis, armies attacking, We want to relate it in some way to our own experience as followers of Jesus Christ in the new covenant. 
Lord, I think it's very easy for us as we go throughout this life, when we face crisis, crises of one stripe or another, when they come crashing, to forget that our hope, too, is found in the coming of a son, the future coming of a son who will deliver us. We're so thankful that Jesus did come at one time, that he was born of a virgin, and he dwelt amongst men, that he was God with us, and that because of his first coming, we enjoy salvation and deliverance from our sins. But Father, our soul should long for his second coming. When all of these crises that we face, the difficult trials, the tearful moments, the scars are the, and the wounds are healed by the Son. I pray, Father, this morning that you would comfort the hearts and the souls of people in our assembly who are going through difficult trials. May they take heart in this Old Testament prophecy that's fulfilled in Jesus' coming and is coming again. We thank you for it, Lord. Pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may stand.